This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. We've talked on this show previously about the importance of reducing disaster risks, particularly in those countries most exposed to the impacts of climate change. But these challenges can't be solved alone, particularly by those countries who can least afford it. Today, we're coming to you from Canberra with the former Special Representative of the Secretary General for Disaster Risk Reduction to the United Nations and Head of the United Nations International Strategy for Disaster Reduction. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today? Josh, we've got a big show lined up today. We're joined by Dr. Robert Glasser. Robert was an Assistant Director General at AusAid before joining Care Australia as the Chief Executive, overseeing aid and humanitarian relief programs in Asia and the Middle East. He then took on the role of Secretary General of Care before joining the United Nations. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Australia's role in disaster risk management, how we can build back better, how climate and disaster impact on national security and why we're in a growing sector. We'll also be asking Robert about his extensive career and what he's doing now back in Australia. Join us as we discuss the big issues here on Australia's leading disaster podcast. Robert Glasser, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here with you. So really, so excited to talk to you today about um, disasters, but wanted to understand your background. Can you tell us a bit more about, I guess, how you came into this space, what brought you to ASPE, and you've got a pretty exciting career behind ASPE. Take us through how that, how you eventuated and, and became here. Well, I, I spent some time after I got my PhD at a place called the Los Alamos National Laboratory in, in the United States in New Mexico, really stunningly beautiful place. And I ended up sitting, waiting, I had to get a clearance to work there because they were doing defense work. I wasn't doing defense work, but, and I ended up sitting with the climate scientists uh, and started talking to them about the modeling they were doing on climate impacts and started getting quite concerned about what they were saying. Now, this is decades ago already. So this the climate problem has been known by scientists for a really long time. And uh, so essentially started working on climate and then in uh, subsequent jobs, I was working on development on poverty and humanitarian emergencies mm. with initially with uh, AusAid, the, the former yeah. Australian aid program, and subsequently with CARE, which is a big international NGO. And everywhere I went in developing countries, whether it was in sub-Saharan Africa or in South America, everywhere or in Southeast Asia, I was seeing evidence of these in increasing frequency and severity of extreme climatic events. Uh, so anyway, that got me very much focused on this. In the UN, uh, I moved from CARE where I was working to work in the UN on disaster risk reduction. I was the uh, Secretary General Special Representative for Disaster Risk. So again, traveled many to many countries, had a chance to see what they were doing, these countries were doing to reduce disaster risk and also saw more and more evidence of big climate impacts. So when we came back to Australia, I thought uh, I want to work on the policy issues. The government of the day was not 
particularly supportive of strong climate action, as you may recall. Uh, and, uh, and Aspie was a good place to be for someone coming from NGOs and from the UN in this government to be able to influence the bureaucracy and speak to uh, government bureaucrats without them feeling nervous about talking to uh, someone about climate change. It's a pretty big deal for someone from Australia to be at the UN, isn't it? That's, that's a huge sort of achievement to just work for the UN overseas in such a senior level. Like what sort of skills did that require in terms of your background? Like did you learn things in care that really sort of helped you to, I guess, work in that international policy space? Uh, it was a great honour to actually, to my surprise, to work in the UN because uh, in CARE and other places I'd seen the UN and I have to say it was a really mixed picture that I had of the UN. But I think the UN mission is really profound. And I remember when Ban Ki-moon uh, took me up uh, into the, the top floor of the UN building in New York and all the heads of agencies were there and I had to uh, recite the um, international public servant oath it was a really profound moment. And I realized how significant this is with all its faults. The UN is has a really important mission and a really noble mission. So, uh, yeah, I saw, uh, saw a lot of weaknesses, but um, huge uh, benefits also from the UN system in the UN system. Mm. It, it's really interesting, your journey, because a lot of people, I think sometimes, especially in that disaster sphere, kind of go domestically then kind of branch out internationally, but you've kind of done that the other way around. You've gone from that international space. How do you think that's um, framed your view domestically? Like w looking at some of those really broad high level issues, how has that, I guess, framed how you think about disasters and disaster risk reduction in the Australian context? Well, there's surprisingly, uh, surprisingly similar themes, both in developing countries and in developed countries. Yeah. Uh, there are both low-tech and high-tech. First of all, the disasters are striking both. It's yep. not respecting borders. Yep. Secondly, um, the main difference is often the resources available and the, the, the technology, the, um, the modeling, the money to be able to spend on responses. Yep. Uh, so actually what you see at a local level in a developing country is actually similar to what we see in uh, rural Australia or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm on the board of the Queensland Reconstruction Authority, QRA, and one of the great things about that board is that the board has an opportunity to visit local government areas that have been affected by disasters and talk to the mayor and, you know, local graziers. And, and it's, it's a wonderful way of ground-truthing the, mm. the policy with what's actually happening in a place like Australia. And I feel that I've, was in, I've been very fortunate to be able to see that connection or lack of connection, yeah. the policy coherence or incoherence, also by connecting with local communities in less developed countries in places like Ethiopia or, yeah. or Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, Andrew and I talk a lot about even um, when you sometimes see that disconnect between policymakers and obviously what happens on the ground. And, you know, we need to put a lot of effort into how we bridge those gaps and understand both sides. Um, like we see it uh, in academia as well, you know, a lot of research in academia, but what does that actually mean on the ground? How do you actually tangibly translate that into action on the ground? Um, would really be keen to understand uh, from your point of view, given that you've kind of seen disaster risk reduction, you're seeing kind of the impacts of climate change, both at the local level and you've observed that at that international level. 
if you could unpack for us, if you had to say the state of play for, you know, climate change and disaster risk reduction right here today in this second is, how would you kind of sum that up? How would you kind of help us understand what is the lay of the land that we're actually looking at it as we speak? I would say the lay of the land is that we are on the cusp of a transformation. And uh, what we see currently everywhere, including but now a bit less so in Australia, is a very siloed approach to risk, climate risk and disaster risk. So you have the environment ministries producing climate adaptation strategies. You have the emergency response uh, agencies looking at, um, you know, risk reduction measures, and you have multiple strategies. And of course, climate change isn't a natural disasters issue. It's not an environmental issue. It's a systemic change that's happening, which will affect everything. So a key indicator that we're making progress is with is, is when disaster risk and climate risk um, find a home across government, including in treasuries, in the prime minister's office, and at every level in, in within society from, you know, national to local, to regional to local. And we're now at the cusp of that transition. And what's driving it is the frequency and severity of disasters. And those are now going up non-linearly globally, including here in Australia. So I think that's where we are. We're about to make the change. We're it won't happen overnight, uh, but you know the old approach after a big disaster would be to set up a royal commission, which is essentially kicking the can down the road until the political heat among the public diminishes. As we've seen in Australia, we don't really have. There's no option now to kick the can down the road. We have major disaster, a, a bushfire disaster followed by record flooding, and these things are happening more and more often in less and less time separating them. So, yeah, I think the change is coming. Yeah. In terms of, uh, I think it's a really interesting point uh, because a lot of our listeners and and followers obviously, you know, work in government. We've got a lot of people in local government uh, and work across right across the sector. For you, um, you know, you kind of have this valuable position where you're not kind of in the system, but you kind of observe it from the outside in and probably get some insights that not everyone not everyone does. I mean, when you're in the heat of battle, you often, you know, have the blinkers on. It's a bit harder to see where some of those, you know, systems failures are. For you, and if you were to give advice on those operating in that system now, what do you think is some of the key advice or what are some of those tangible strategies that people could be using now to, I guess, bridge some of those gaps um, in terms of how do we actually collaborate as a broader industry and not just the industry, but across community? You know, I've, I've used this metaphor before of, uh, you know, if you could have glasses that could see risk and you put them on, you wouldn't see risk floating in a agencies in, in one bureaucratic silo. You wouldn't see those risks just operating at the national level or just at the local level the risks would be flying in every direction. And so a key to triggering that um, integration is to understand the risk. And uh, because if we truly understand the risk, then it, we realize that it requires collaboration. It can't be solved by any one agency uh, or any one level of government, or even in fact, national government without looking at regional impacts and global impacts, for example, food, yeah. the connections, food systems. Uh, so I think that's the key step that uh, is needed right now. It's really hard. That sounds very academic in a way yeah. to say that, but it is beginning to happen. For example, uh, 
Australia is now implementing, Albanese has uh, asked uh, the head of ONI, Andrew Shearer, to develop, uh, to produce a client, to lead the development of a climate risk assessment. And I'm hoping what they're going to do, and um, I've been advocating for this, is to define the national objectives and then and many of those national objectives will involve multiple agencies, including ones that aren't traditional security agencies. And then on the basis of that work, get those agencies together to work out the risks and the responses rather than what typically happens is here are the terms of reference, each agency produce your response, and then we'll sort of, uh, you know, compile it as a document. So... I, I love that analogy, and sorry, I'm hogging the mic here, Andrew, but I, I love that analogy of the glasses because I, I often talk, you know, in my day job around how do, how can we explain the narrative? Like how do we actually um, sit down with someone and take them through that narrative so they actually understand, you know, what we're talking about and what it actually means to them? Because I think quite often you talk about the external things and what it means for community, but bring that conversation back down to that granular level of what does it mean for you as an agency or what does that mean for you as a government? Um, you know, what will this, and I think one of the big ones in that is obviously cost um, and having that idea of glasses, almost being able to put that lens on people and actually seeing what are actually going to be all those impacts and what it means for them is, is really key to obviously driving action in people. Um, if you're someone who's, um, probably, you know, younger in the industry. And we talked about this with Craig Fugate when he was on, you know, that, you know, if you're, and actually we talked about with Greg Mullins as well in terms of if you're someone in an agency, you know, how do you have some of those hard conversations? Because as you said, we're kind of on that cusp. So there's still some of those hard conversations happening. People are still obviously having some of those, you know, intellectual debates in terms of uh, inside of organisations and agencies around where we should go. If you're someone who's, I guess, not senior but works in that space and is quite a passion advocate, do you have any advice for them around how you might handle that situation in terms of how do you kind of manage up but do that in a respectful way or a way that's impactful? Well, in the old government, uh, you know, to have any traction at all in government, you couldn't really talk about climate change. You could maybe talk about our changing climate, which seems like uh, – but, um, you know, I think – there's a limit. What I've observed globally is that you see major change in step changes mm. in disaster risk reduction in very limited circumstances. Generally, what I've observed is kind of incremental change. Yeah. Uh, and, but the, so the exceptions are when there's leadership at the top, whether it's Modi because he in India, because he experienced Gujarat that's been leading some big changes or the former Mexican president, um, Peña Nieto, also because he'd experienced major disasters. But uh, other, without that sort of leadership, it tends to be incremental improvements. And we've seen that in Australia, uh, where you have, you know, blood fests to make tiny uh, improvements in the system, like volunteer firefighters, for example, in Melbourne. Um, but um, the the major step changes happen after big disasters. So you can have the best business case in the world that says, if you invest uh, another million dollars in risk reduction, you'll get $50 billion return on your yeah. investment. It doesn't matter what the figure is because every cause has that data for their cause. You can always make that case that invest more in my thing, which I care deeply about because it's my thing. Mm -hmm and you'll have a huge return on your investment. So what, what elevates it to the level of attention 
so that a minister or a prime minister says, we're going to spend money on this. And what has happened generally in this field is that it's been big disasters. And so my answer is the same answer to that question about where we are at this moment. These disasters are happening more and more often. Those conversations of that junior person in bureaucracies will become more and more productive as that happens. So we've even had some pretty big disasters this year, like particularly in Eastern Australia, we've had floods, we've had um, floods again and again and again. We've had the cyclone in Geraldton in Western Australia, the floods in South Australia. What does it take to actually get action though in terms of big action? And people have been speaking up as event um, most recently saying, oh, manage retreat, we need to sort of move Lismore, move these towns. I mean, in Western Sydney, more than 300,000 people live below the 1% AEP flood level. So that's a pretty big change. But how like, how do we how do we get there? What, what I've seen, I guess, too, is, is a lot of political leadership after these events sort of saying, yes, we're going to move these towns, we're going to do something. But then when the time comes, we're sort of walking back from those statements now because we realise that the challenge is so large. We can't afford to move 300,000 people. We can't afford to move the town of Lismore. So... Where do we go now with managed retreat and those sort of things, actually consider what this looks like? So I think there's a lot of political will to sort of change these, but when it comes to the community, a lot of people have been saying, oh, I'd, I'd love to move, and then it becomes to sort of the actual doing that, and we can't afford it, we're attached to the community, it can't happen. So have you seen examples overseas where this has actually worked? Actually, I've seen examples in Australia where it's a Grantham stuff, one everyone points to, but QRA is right now managing a, a buyback, a property buyback scheme I think the largest scale scheme that we've ever implemented in Australia, and it's really politically difficult, but there's will that hasn't existed before to do that. Mm. So that's happened. Um, and, you know, the reason that's happened now is because of the scale of the disaster. Um, so I think those sorts of things will happen more managed retreats, you know, um, just to give you another link it to an international experience, I remember I had a meeting uh, with the mayor of Quito, Ecuador. And we were sitting there at the time when the volcano that towers over Ecuador had just entered an active stage. And they were really worrying about a major earthquake. And he told me that his engineers had just given him a study that said in the next major earthquake, something like 70% of the homes in Quito would collapse. Oh, chase. <laughs> you know, what do I do with that? You know, uh, there's no way he has enough money to reinforce those buildings or to move people out. And this is the huge challenge for everyone. But I'm mean, including in Australia where the vast majority of infrastructure has been built a long time ago and to different standards and certainly not climate change risk standards. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, so, but a good starting point would be let's not build new things in hazard zones. Let's get the hazard zones right by trying to incorporate climate risk in them, the hazard maps, and then let's not build new buildings in those areas. But even that is a huge challenge, as yeah. you know, because LGAs often are taking these decisions and they're strapped for money and there are huge pressures on them from their communities to put in a new, whatever it is, a uh, a recreational center or a water treatment plant. And so that's going to require um, a more active engagement by state government and the Commonwealth as well to enable that to happen. And politically, that's dicey. Nothing's easy in this space, is it? <laughs> Nothing's easy. <laughs> Do you, I, I think I can't remember where you made the comment. 
Robert, but I, I, I think it was uh, a comment you made publicly and it was all, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, it was around how that in a sense we've almost missed the boat for major change in that DRR space in terms of it's almost got too far out in front of us and really all we can really, all we can really do now is kind of play catch up. Um, unpack that idea for us a little bit because I know when I read that I was like, oh, the hope's been stripped away from me. Here I have been holding on to this, you know, light on the hill that disaster risk reduction is going to solve everything. But has the problem actually gone too far down the road? Are, are we going to be playing catch up for a certain period of time before we can ever get ahead of this problem? One thing I'm sure of is we're never going to get ahead of this problem if the lion's share of our spending is on disaster response rather than risk reduction mm-hmm. because – we are now committed to globally committed to more than 1.5 degrees of warming. Um, that's because, as you probably, maybe your reader, your listeners know that there's this momentum in the climate. So the warming we're feeling now is a result of uh, coal production, greenhouse gases uh, released decades ago. And so even if we stopped every car, every factory tomorrow morning, the climate's going to continue to warm pretty close, actually probably beyond 1.5 mm-hmm. degrees. What that means is that we're committed to major impacts. We're committed to major impacts because, and uh, because, firstly, because the rate of change is accelerating. It's not a linear increase. It's a non-linear increase, which means from a human nature perspective, what we've seen in the last five years isn't the pace of change we can expect in the next five years. The second reason it's going to be quite significant is because a lot of the analysis of the impacts is silo based itself. It talks about one hazard and what that will mean. But as we discussed at the beginning, it's a whole system change with climate. And that means that these things are going to be happening simultaneously, in effect, simultaneously. So, and we're seeing this now we had in black summer, we had a major drought combined with record setting drought, record setting temperatures, heat, that triggered record-setting fires that were so severe with combined with those other factors that it, the fires generated their own weather, which spread the fires further, became a, not just a huge economic crisis, it became a biodiversity crisis, it became an air quality crisis for those of us in Canberra and elsewhere, uh, and it very nearly became a water crisis for Sydney because you may recall Warangamba Dam was threatened at, at the midst of that. So you have these now simultaneous record-setting events that cascade through society in ways that then hugely amplify the impact. So yes, it's too late, sadly, to avoid that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything because (laughs) it could, number one, it could be, it can get a lot worse if we don't globally reduce greenhouse gases. And number two, through our actions and our investments, we can reduce the impacts Mm. and we're talking about saving tens of thousands of lives and billions and billions of dollars of investment. So we should absolutely redouble our efforts to reduce risk, but we have to have our eyes open that uh, we're heading into a really rough time. And, um, and yes, and it's really at this point unavoidable that we'll feel at least significantly more disruptive events. I think some of our nearest neighbours are the ones that are going to feel this, like the heat the most and see the sea level rise and the impacts of climate change probably far earlier than what we will. I think they're experiencing those sort of challenges now. We're the 55th largest population in Australia in the world and the 12th largest economy. What's, what do you see our role in terms of disaster risk reduction in that Asia-Pacific region? Like, Do we have a bigger role to play than what we're playing now, do you think? Uh, the 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's, and our role, we can look at this in terms, even narrowly, not just in terms of our humanitarian, um, you know, idealistic mm. role, reason to engage, but in terms of our self-interest, because uh, we've done some work that suggests that uh, if you look at Indonesia, for example, on our northern doorstep, 200 kilometers from Australia, the closest points, um, it is a hotspot of overlapping climate hazards, uh, fastest sea level rise in the world, largest population exposed to sea level rise, you know, very rapidly in Indonesia, one in 100 year extreme flooding events linked to sea level rise are, will be annual events, plural. Uh, and you overlay agricultural impacts from extreme heat. And anyway, there, I won't go into the detail, but there's a, a range of overlapping hazards that is going to really, really, um, disrupt stability in Indonesia. And of course this has implications for Australia, not just people movements, but potentially, uh, opportunistic interventions by outside powers and a whole range of issues. So yes, we should be playing a much larger role in working with our Indonesian neighbors, our particularly our neighbors in Southeast Asia and maritime Southeast Asia, as well as the Pacific, of course. And do you see other countries in that opportunistic sort of stage coming in to sort of say, oh, here, here's $5 billion to build sea walls and levees and those sort of things to help protect against the impact of these disasters and then providing that, I guess, strategic military advantage in the future? I don't know. These are sort of, I guess, the, the complications that could come from this. Yeah. And we've seen in the Solomons recently, uh, the deal between the Solomons and China, uh, which uh, which kind of hints movements in that direction, and China has built you know artificial islands and and can offer that. So if uh, if I were the head of a Pacific island state country, small island developing uh, state, and China came to me with that offer, and I didn't have anything else to grab onto, I would grab onto that, mm. and I think one of the features of the future are going to be that is going to be that um, islands will play Australia, the U S off China to get the best deals they can, which fundamentally will mean more investment uh, and climate change will be, it already is in the Pacific anyway, the fundamental development and economic issue for the Pacific Island uh, community. So yeah, I think that's one aspect of this disruption from climate change. It creates, has these strategic implications with China mm. and, and the US and Australia. Yeah, that national security piece and, and how, you know, that the, the climate change issues are exacerbating some of those geopolitical issues is fascinating. I think it was an article again that you were writing about and talking about that duality in terms of, you know, what is actually the greatest risk to, to Australian national security. And even though, you know, past governments and, and individuals that have sit in portfolios have very much said, you know, oh, China and it's and it's that that's our threat. You know, where, where you actually, I think it was saying that, yes, in a sense, that is that tangible threat. But what are those things that wrap around that to exacerbate it? And this is this um, this this climate change element that comes into the conversation. Do you think, as Australia, that that leaders are thinking that way? Like, are we thinking about risk in that broad, holistic sense yet as a country? Do you think? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, not yet, not at all. In fact, I think the metaphor I used for that was that, you know, China, Australia, US uh, competition is like, you know, the pieces on the chessboard moving the pieces when climate change is upending the chessboard. Yeah. 
And I think, yeah, I think that kind of, at least for me, captures how much more fundamental climate change is as a, as a security risk, because, you know, with all the other things, bilateral relationships, uh, even if things are rough, there's a solution. You can kind of, uh, have a peace agreement, you can reach a, a, an understanding with climate change. If we don't address it quickly, it's not reversible in any, you know, it's, it's really, we're committed for sea level rise. You're committed for hundreds of years to what's mm. happened. So there's a sense of urgency and there's also this, this system thing, yeah. which affects everything, not just military relations with China and competition, but yeah. trade and energy and a whole range of other issues. So so yeah. what do you think in terms of that, like if we were to, if we were to, I guess, describe to the listeners tangibly then what our involvement would look like, you know, what would that international footprint involvement look like? Is it kind of like aid? Would we provide, like, what's your thinking? Have you done some thinking in that space around how we would as a country, I guess, apply some of those strategies or services or resources? What would that look like? Well, one of, one uh, example of this is the proposal that, which links actually our domestic disaster and climate response to the international, was the proposal uh, that uh, well was uh, the proposal that Al- Albanese made during the campaign to explore whether we needed a national disaster response force so that you could free up the Australian defence forces to focus on the huge disruptions that are going to increase in our immediate region. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I don't think that's going to happen, although I know they're going to be reviewing this for the reasons I'm sure you're both aware of, hugely expensive. And, um, but it's the sort of bold idea that we need to really start thinking about. It doesn't make sense now. Does it make sense in a world in which we're seeing more and more of these disruptions that are affecting Australia directly? I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating conversation because I know that even internally in that emergency management and even in that d- disaster space, it's almost been about um, is using the, you know, the defence force really a sustainable way to manage disasters? You know, something happens, we bring them in, but is that really, you know, yes, it's, it, it fixes the here and now, um, but is that really a sustainable solution moving into the future? And do we actually need to wean ourselves off as a country in terms of looking to our defence forces for that support domestically? And I think you've just raised a great point. What happens if we are in a very tense geopolitical, you know, environment? Can, do you think in the future we'll actually have that capacity in the defence force to draw out from that international stage and put them domestically to respond to disasters. You know, it's like uh, another analogy would be what's happening with fire uh, firefighting equipment in Australia, where when you as the fire season is extending, yeah. the states can't share with each other as they've coped with fire in their their fire season to pass equipment to you know New South Wales from Queensland. Yeah. And similarly, defense is able to do this because there isn't something else happening overseas, but climate is going to alter that as well. So I think we'll be in that same situation where we have to make choices. And actually what will happen, I guess it'll determine, it'll be determined by how severe the domestic crisis is relative to the regional one. Um, But it's that same situation. And um, the, the main thing is we don't have good solutions partly because we haven't even begun thinking about these issues. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this climate security risk assessment is going to at least begin that process of thinking through what this means in the region, what it means for Australia domestically, 
and trying to make those connections with those risks going in every direction, as we discussed earlier. And I have to admit, I'm a bit sceptical with the Defence Force. I kind of think that, like, we use them because they have a really a strong presence on the ground, they wear uniform, they sort of they bring that brand of sort of we're here, we're here to save the day that the, the government needs to sort of make an appearance as though they're on the ground helping um, the community. But there must be other solutions that have been used overseas. I think, like, we've got to really sort of how, how do we empower communities to do this work? How do we sort of gear up our civil society to do this work? I just, I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Yeah, there are. And there are risks for the military and for Australia as well. Because You may remember during uh, the recent floods, there was the photo op, the photographs of the military, you know, and there's a risk that uh, the military's reputation, which is so important, becomes eroded by engaging in activities. You know, the reality is different from what the media necessarily highlights. It can be just one or two events and it can have a huge impact. Um, so I think there's a risk. There's a risk on from that perspective. I think there are examples of uh, other approaches. So India, for example, has a civilian national disaster response force. Um, the U.S. has this weird National Guard, uh, which is partly the U.S. Army and partly, but uh, released by the president, but uh, ordered around by the governors or something like that. Um, so there are other models of doing this, um, but I think uh, I think the important thing to keep in mind about these others is that they are models that have been developed in a without a climate disrupted world, and whatever's out there that may be working currently may not work as these hazards become more and more frequent and severe. And I think it's groups that we probably don't think about now, like land care that can probably play a bigger part in these sort of things, about greening Australia. It's not about disaster so much as joining a local sort of fire brigade and helping out when a response happens. I think it's more about this sort of stuff that happens pre-disaster. And we haven't really seen any sort of large groups or organisations really empowered through that preparedness and mitigation work yet. Defence hasn't done it. Um, RFS and CFA and SS, they haven't gone that down that path either. So I think it's, it's really an opportunity, I think, for someone to come into that space and go, we've got a, a looming disaster and climate risk upon us, how do we actually make that happen? So it'll be interesting times ahead to see what that, that's not a question, but I think that's interesting times ahead to see what, what we're going to see in that space. I agree with you. I think there is a big opportunity there. And I'd probably start with uh, local communities, local government areas that have exper- recently experienced a big disaster, because uh, one thing I've observed is that just like at the national level, that big disasters enable b- things to happen. If you look at the strategies and business plans for local government communities that have had big disasters, you see risk reduction. And in the plan, if you look at one that hasn't had one in three years, yeah. it's invisible because other priorities crowded out. But yeah, I think there's a big opportunity there, as you said. And that's happened, I think, organically in a lot of communities now. They're actually starting to do this sort of work. I know Mullumbimby, for example, the Northern Rivers, they're doing a heap of stuff and they're being funded by government in some cases to actually do a lot of this preparedness work and connect each other. And I guess a connected community is a resilient community. We know that. So So I think also another indicator that we're moving forward will be that what are currently pots of money for betterment or risk reduction will be will still be there, but essentially all the funding, whether it's from tourism, whatever state agency or department it is, all of them will have within their terms of reference for the RFPs or whatever, will have the opportunity for betterment and risk reduction incorporated in that so that it doesn't become, you know, this 
you know, just a pot of money for one that you can use on a variety of things, but it becomes in a way mainstream, but seriously not as a way of <laughs> making it go away. Well, I think the other thing is then how do you actually prioritize that effort and investment? You know, where, you know, at the moment you take floods, for example, each council does their own, you know, flood risk, um, you know, their, their own flood studies. But again, how do we actually get that national picture of what is the real risk and where where does the investment priority need to go? If we've only got X amount of dollars and X amount of time, where do we hit first? I think that's that's interesting discussion. Yes. Uh, I have a lot of different angles in response to that. One is, um, you know, look at where the risk is, yeah. but that's not very helpful. Second is uh, I like the focus at a regional level, state regional level, because it's possible to develop a regional strategy that might incorporate um, floodplains, for example, or catchment areas rather than LGAs, which are sharing the same catchments and are taking totally different approaches. So I think there's a looking bottom up, there's an opportunity at a regional level to engage and to prioritize and develop the key investments. And in Queensland, I think that's happening there. There's been a, an attempt to develop a list of the top priorities through a process of consultation, uh, top resilience priorities, investments. Unfortunately, the Commonwealth uh, was the funder. And I think uh, what were the top five priorities on the list, I think were not funded. And they sort of, there had, I, I suspect there was a link to marginal political seats in the election coming up in the choices. But but still, I think the regional level is, a, is an interesting one. Um, but, you know, there's a whole huge amount of things that should be in place to get that right, to help get that right, starting yeah. with, what are the current hazard maps? Uh, how do we embed climate risk in those maps? How do we roll them out? How do we make sure that once we have hazard maps that we're not building in those places? Yeah. And and then there's that huge issue of the existing infrastructure that you can't move at this point and the cost that we it, talked about. It's almost like, you know, for that data piece around risk, like we have, you know, like many of our listeners be aware in the EM space, we talk a lot about having a common operating picture during response. You know, everyone needs to have an, have an awareness of what's the context, what's the operational environment we're working in that will then guide decision-making. It's almost like we need a common operating picture at the national level around the risk that currently faces our communities. And that way, you know, from a, from a, you know, when we're, again, when we're talking at the start about this systems approach is that then that enables all of the players that actually hold a hand on a lever to pull, at least everyone actually understands the problem that we're tackling because I kind of get the feeling right now that everyone, everyone understands that there's a big issue at play. Everyone understands something needs to be done, but there's almost paralysis at the moment by analysis in terms of we kind of know something needs to be done, but we're not really 100% sure from what, what would that coordinated approach across whole of society or whole of community looks like. You know, I, um, when I came back from the UN to Australia, I attended Mark Crosswaller at EMA had organized this uh, policy sprint, it was called, uh, which itself, I think we were talking before the podcast about the uh, return of uh, the resilience function into home affairs. And that policy sprint in itself was a, um, an indicator of the challenge because it was such a short period of time to answer such fundamental questions in Australia, but that's the politics. Um, but um, one of the words that really stood out for me in that policy sprint was jurisdictions. And I've been in many countries in the UN in care and other places where I've been able to look at the uh, local community to national level. 
And the word jurisdiction, even in other federations or confederated uh, government structures, just was not used as prominently. And I think it was the word uh, um, jurisdiction was basically used to say, stay out of my patch. It's mine. It's mine. And I think, um, so my reaction to that is, there's anything that the Commonwealth wants to do that isn't either about knowledge and information about risk or additional funding tends to be viewed by states and territories as in, as a, as you know, a, a, in effect, a land grab, a power grab. And there's, now this is changing, yeah. but there is that jurisdictional thing that gets in the way and it is going to change more rapidly for the same reason everything else is going to change. But. So, so my question to you then, and Andrew and I have had lots of conversation about this, and and you know, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew and I have seen it firsthand, have seen these tensions firsthand, have lived these tensions I'm sure firsthand. You have. Um, is the conversation that that in terms of the federation, in terms of the constitution, that is in a sense outdated for the disaster space? That notion of your patch, my patch, my legislative responsibility, your legislative responsibility, is that 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 structure no longer going to suit the future? I think you, we have to unpack that mm. more than to say that as a, or suggest that as a blanket statement, mm. because, um, you know, there is also this principle of get authority and decision-making as close to the people who are affected or yeah. by it as possible. So there's a real strength in that. Mm. Um, on the other hand, as you've pointed out with the scale of these disasters, um, it is Un, it, it's not enough either to, in terms of the risk reduction agenda or even the disaster response agenda for it to be just left to local communities and states and territories. It's one of the reasons Morrison, uh, you know, the, the legislation granting emergency authority and probably what will happen is that that authority of the Commonwealth will increase and it will increase just politically. It, could increase um, with the support of the states, um, more likely to increase with funding to the states as well as a sweetener to enable that to happen. But it's absolutely is going to happen just because no state will be able on, to, on its own deal with the scale of these disasters. And they are essentially becoming national scale disasters as we're seeing. So yeah, I think that is, we're going to move in that direction, but we have to be careful in how that happens that we don't lose that local empowerment and support to enable that to happen. Yeah. But there's inefficiency in that as well as we talked about LGAs mm -hmm. taking totally different approaches um, that is really less efficient than if they agreed an approach, a collective approach, mm -hmm. which is one reason I like the regional, the focus at the regional level yeah. um, in states and territories. I know we're running a bit um, short on time, so I just want to jump into a listener question. So uh, we've had a fan write in. Christiane asks, what do you see as the main lines of effort to manage disaster risk in Australia over the next 10 years? I think it is, number one, it will be incorporating climate risk. Uh, actually, let me take a step back. Number one, do everything we can to encourage the rest of the world to reduce greenhouse gases as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, incorporate climate risk in, in planning and investments across government. These sound very vague, but there's a lot of detail that goes with each of them. Number three, we have to mainstream betterment 
in in every way we can because the time is running out. Um, and I think, of course, overlaying all of this is what we've said about understanding the risk and where it's going and which directions it, and, and the fact that it can't be addressed at only at a local level, at a state level, even at a national level, and certainly not within bureaucratic silos. Probably, probably something to leave us on a, on a positive note because it's been a bit of a roller coaster <laughs> conversation. But but I think we have to be real. I, I think you know you genuinely have to look at some of these problems with with your reality glasses on in terms of what we're going to be facing. Um, and, and again, it was a conversation we were having before we we hit the record button. But um, in terms of you know, unfortunately and disappointingly and upsettingly, this is a growth industry. This is an industry that is going to grow exponentially over the, over the next five to 10 years. Um, Andrew and I, and as our listeners would know, are extremely passionate about how do we kind of build that workforce for tomorrow? How do we get key political decision makers? How do we get everyone kind of thinking about these issues? And like you said, having that cross-sectorial kind of involvement and engagement, people need to understand disasters and what they mean for community. Um, those who are out there and listening going, I'm an engineer, but, you know, what do I really have to play like in this disaster space? Or I work in health policy. What do I actually have to offer? What would be your kind of message or takeaway? Because you've, you know, to, Andrew and I are kind of awestruck sitting here across you. You've had an amazing career. For someone who may be sitting in one of those kind of periphery departments or someone who may not think, I, don't, I can't really affect that disaster space or I don't really have a role in disaster reduction – what would be that thing that you would say to them or leave them with today? I would say, uh, first of all, you do have a role. You have a fundamental role. You have a fundamental role in your with your family. If you have a family in your house, if you're just living alone in a house, in your community, and potentially well beyond your community, if you're interested and and want to put the energy into that. There are a whole uh, there's a whole network of people across Australia regionally and globally who are fundamentally committed to risk reduction and to reducing disaster risk and incorporating climate risk in that. And there are opportunities in Australia through uh, uh, professional societies, engineers, for example, uh, and increasingly each of the professional societies, if you're an engineer, are incorporating climate risk. It's just starting now, but it that will accelerate dramatically. And if and, and so I think people should feel empowered to do that. And in fact, we need to feel empowered. Yeah. All of us needs to feel, need to feel empowered to work on this. I think just, uh, you know, just to leave with a, 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 a note of optimism, you know, there are, we are committed to 1.5 degrees uh, at least of warming, but the transformation, the energy transformation that's underway is just unprecedented and it's happening. It will happen much faster than anyone realizes, than most people realize. Uh, and so I think the worst of those climate impacts are going to be avoided mm. just because, and it won't be necessarily because of government policies, although the governments could, it could and should accelerate that transition. It'll be just because the market will make it happen because of the uh, increasingly low cost of renewable energies relative to other sources. So, so that gives me a sense of optimism, but because we're already committed to major additional changes and shocks, we have to get our act together on disaster risk. 
I drove a um, electric car for the first time last week. I was amazed at how good it was. And I was just like, I need to move into the 21st century. And I think as people sort of go, wow, fuel's getting expensive. They go and buy an electric car. The economy changes. That, I remember studying at uni and I did an uh, economics degree and, um, and the lecturer always said he was very anti-climate change, but said climate change and, and we'll move to that sort of more greener industry when it becomes economically viable. And in a lot of ways, he's actually right. I mean, he was wrong about climate change, but he's right about that the economic make sense and people actually start to be motivated to do that and I think we're in a time now where that is starting to happen and things are starting to change with the early sort of indicators that things are changing hopefully for the better um as you said, we've got to agree that we've got a 1.5. Um, we can't really get away from that now. It's it's with us, and we're just need to sort of mitigate those risks and work about how we can do that. But um, yeah, a lot to think about and a lot to consider from today's discussion. So unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. But Robert Glasser, thanks so much for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks very much. It's been great to speak with you both. Thanks heaps. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.